Welcome to the LTUE Podcast, a place to listen to panels you may have missed or relive a few highlights. To learn more about next year's symposium or to purchase tickets, visit LTUE.net. And without further ado, on to a session that was recorded at our 2020 symposium. Uh, welcome out. I am Larry Correa. I'm going to be talking to you guys today about business, uh, writing business stuff. And it's basically, uh, they gave me a two-hour block for this, which is actually awesome because every time I do this in an hour, I'm running the phone really long because you guys usually have so many questions. Um, this, uh, the goal here today is we're not going to do the fluffy stuff. There's a lot of stuff here in LTVI, which I do, but the fluffy stuff, which is, you know, the creativity and plotting versus pantsing and, you know, how to write characters and how to write villains. And that stuff is all awesome and it's very vital and it's very important. However, there's not a lot of these where we talk about the actual business of being a writer. Um, because my thing is, this is my job. All right, I'm a professional writer, I've done pretty good, uh, but one of the reasons I haven't been able to quit my day job seven years ago and just write books was because I was a businessman first, and I treated it like a job rather than a hobby. So that's what we're going to talk about today, and hopefully I can help you guys out some. All right, so there are many topics we're going to hit today, and uh, hopefully we can get through a lot of them. All right, so, real fast, we live in a very exciting time as far as publishing goes. Uh, who in here is trying to become a traditionally published author through a regular publishing house? Okay. Who in here is going indie and uh, selling directly? Okay, who in here is kind of doing hybrid and going with the bull? Actually, this is good. This is good. We've got a wide variety here, and a lot of you guys are trying to do both ways. So let me talk a little bit about the pros and cons of each and how to do this. Uh, and also, once you get in and you start making money, all the, all the nasty stuff that you have to deal with then. All right, so first off, traditional publishing is actually really awesome, and so is indie. They both have a lot of good going for them. I started out indie. I started out self-published. Uh, my very first novel, Monster Hunter International, I self-published it. I tried to publish it traditionally. I got rejected a hundred times uh, by various publishing houses and agencies. And all together, by the time I was done, I had a shoebox uh, full of rejection letters. Now, I think by the time Monster Hunter broke like the first uh, first million copies in print, I took that and blew it up with a jug of Tannerite, uh, <laughs> which was fun. Uh, no, but for a while I, I got rejected by everybody, so I've been around this. But, but here's the thing, so all of you guys right now are going to be that rejection process where you're getting shot down. Because there's no shame in that. We're in an industry that has about a 99.99% rejection rate. So there's no shame in getting rejected. You guys may know who Laurel K. Hamilton is, right? Laurel's a friend of mine. We were on a panel together, and we are talking about rejection. I mentioned 100, which is, you know, actually not super high for successful authors. That's not that abnormal. Laurel, 250 rejections for her Anita of Blake series. And the Anita Blake series, I want to say, has sold like 32 million copies. Okay? It's a powerhouse. Her thing was she couldn't sell it because it, it didn't fit in a genre. So people were like, well, it's not really romance. It's not really fantasy. Well, we don't know what, it's not really paranormal or romance. So we don't know what to do with it. <laughs> but she basically created a genre. So, no shame and get rejected. That's the downside of traditional publishing is it's super freaking hard to break in. Uh, 
Uh, one of the things we'll talk about a little bit for this is agents. We'll come back around to this. Are agents, are agents worth it? Uh, what does an agent do for you? Now, the other side of things is uh, once you get into traditional, the advantage of traditional publishing is theoretically you have a publishing house that's supposed to help you in your business. They're supposed to do marketing for you. Eh, sometimes. A lot of times, the publishing houses aren't necessarily that good at marketing. You need to do your own marketing still. It's not a golden ticket. A lot of publishing houses, and I won't name any names, but there's a few that I wouldn't touch with a 10-foot pole, in that they'll get a lot of new authors, and they'll take your, yeah, I see a couple of you laughing because you know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, they'll get a new author, and it's like throwing spaghetti at the wall to see what sticks. And they'll get you, and they'll, they'll give you a pretty good advance. They'll throw your book out there, and they won't market it at all. And then no one buys your books, and you don't earn out your advance, and the publishing house says, eh, you're a loser. Bye. And they never buy anything from you again. We've seen this happen many, many times. Sometimes their publishing house will get behind you, and they'll support you, and they'll push you really hard. And when that happens, that's awesome. That's like winning the lottery. Can't bank on that. You're going to have to work on this yourself. Uh, also, a big publishing house, if you have a good relationship with your editor, it is fantastic. I love my editors. I have three different editors who have edited my books over the years. I love them all. They've all been fantastic to work with. I also know some authors who wind up with an editor that they do not get along with, and it's the kiss of death. There's two guys that are here at this con right now that are good friends of mine who were with a major publishing house and a major editor, and they both got shafted. Um, where the editor just kept kicking this stuff back, didn't like it, made them do stupid stuff, didn't support them. So just because you get into traditional publishing, you're not done. It is not a golden ticket. Now, other side, indie publishing. This is how I started out uh, before I went in with many books. Uh, indie publishing is awesome. And in the last 10 years, I've watched it just go nuts. When I started out, it was $25 print-on-demand paperbacks. Okay, it was pre-ebook revolution. Now, anybody can get in, get on Amazon, get on the Kindle, get on KU, and be turning over books ASAP. And that's awesome. Here's the downside of this. It's you and 100,000 other people also publish books that month. So now the issue is how do you differentiate yourself from that herd? You're in a sea of authors, many of whom are rather good. There's a lot of trash in there, too. So the key is how do you then get in front of your audience and sell the books? That's the hard part. And I know I'm looking around the audience, I've got a bunch of guys in here that I know are uh, self-published authors, and they're trying. They're working hard, and they're talented, and they're, they're hustling. But it's how do you get ahead of that hurt? So that's your challenges. There's not really a right answer. And a lot of times I'll see an author who will get super evangelical, and they'll be like, okay, this is the way of the future. You know, indie is the way of the future, or traditional is the only way to go, and they'll get like super evangelical that if you're not doing it their way, you're an idiot. That's a bunch of crap. Doesn't matter. Ultimately, it is however you personally can make a living. Because this is a business class. We're cutting through the fluffy artistic bullshit. We're getting down to you guys don't want to quit your day job, right? Yeah. All right, that's what, that's what we're here for. <laughs> indie or traditional, it does not matter. Because either way, the key is you've got to have a good product, you're creating a product, and you're getting in front of an audience that will give you money for your product. However you get there does not matter. So if you try to go traditional and you get rejected, if you then want to take that into it and you want to polish that up and you want to try to get out there in front of that herd and sell books, yes, you can do that. And you can make a great living. There's guys here at this con that are selling, you know, they're making six-figure incomes off of... Um, 
they're in the books. Uh, John uh, Van Stray is here. He found a, a, a niche, and in indie books, he does harem fiction. Okay, yeah, I know, not my thing, but he's cleaning up. He's making an excellent living off of this one niche market. He's doing well. So the key is, if you do that, you just have to find out how to get your stuff in front of the audience. It's just like any other business. Who in here's got a business background? Okay, a lot of you. Good. Use the skills that you've learned in business and translate them into writing. It's not any different than any other business. It kills me. It just kills me all the time. I've been doing this for 10 years now. My background, I was a finance manager at a defense contractor. It was the last real job I had before I became a writer. And before that, I owned a gun store. And before that, I was an auditor at a Fortune 100 company. So I have a background in business and number crunching. I see this all the time, and it drives me nuts. I'll be working with these people. I'll be working with aspiring authors. And they get very swung up on the whole artistic thing. Like what we do is so magical, and I have a muse, right? No, 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 your muse is a bullcrap, guys. Uh, the muse, if you're waiting around for a supernatural entity to come and inspire you to work, you're screwed, all right? You need to pay the bills. My muse is I have a mortgage. <laughs> okay, so on that note, whether you go into your traditional, very important here, Single most important thing that you can do in order to build your career, in order to make money, is be prolific. That was the greatest single one piece of advice I got when I was starting out about, about nine years ago, ten years ago. I was a little convention in Tennessee, Liberty Con, and Kevin J. Anderson was the guest of honor. And you guys have probably all seen Kevin around uh, this event. Kevin has been doing this for 30-something years. He's a powerhouse. When Dune comes out, the movie Dune comes out, Kevin's going to be an even bigger powerhouse because that movie's going to make a billion bucks, all right? And Kevin's going to get a chunk of that. Very nice for him. So Kevin sat me down and we just talking about business, and, and he said, you've got to be prolific. And the reason you have to be prolific is the more you do it, the better you'll get. The better you get, the more people will like you, the more people will buy your stuff. And the more stuff they have go back to go back and purchase. A lot of people, a lot of the artists, will get really spun up on this, you know, quality never equals quantity. You've all seen that, right? That's bull. It's crap. Because if you look at the greatest artists in history, almost all of them are extremely prolific. William Shakespeare, you know, had changed writing forever, uh, was exceedingly prolific. And not only was he not an artiste, he wrote for the masses. William Shakespeare wrote what was for the time Paul to entertain regular people, right? Leonardo da Vinci, great mind, great artist, exceedingly prolific, okay? This guy was always creating. You need to be the same way. I'm not talking, this is artistic, but this is also business here, because the more you produce, the more product which you have for people to buy. And also, from the artistic perspective, the more you work, the more you create art, the more likely you are to create something truly great. So it's artistic and business. Anytime someone says quality doesn't equal quality, odds are they're a wannabe writer or they're writing for a newspaper. Okay? They're like they're like writing for the Guardian. Just ignore that guy. Alright? As you guys know the Guardian loves me. For those of you who don't know, certain newspapers don't like me much, okay? But here's the thing, I was making a I was making a good living at this probably five or six years before I first got my very first positive critical review. Okay, so that'll put this in perspective how much they do not matter. Now, on business, whether you're into your traditional, this is going to be the same either way. When I talk about prolific, this is why it's very important. 
you must understand that most of the money authors make, those of us who make a living at this, is not off our new hit book or whatever the new hotness is. That's always going to be good. It's off what's called backlist. Your backlist is your catalog of work that you have created that is out there available for people to purchase. The larger your backlist, the better off you are. Now, the importance of your new books is every time you have a new book come out, I always have a spike. But what happens is every time a new book comes out, more people see it, more people go back and buy all the old stuff. So, if, to break this down for you guys, every, every six months I get a royalty check from my publishing house. And there will be one really large item on it. That's whatever the latest book was. Then there's going to be a whole bunch of little items that I made a few thousand bucks off each book. That's my backlist. Now, when you're trying to quit your day job, it's all about replacing your income, right? For most of us, even traditional publishers, most of us do not quit our day job until we're about five or six books in. Because at that point, you now have enough money coming in between the new one, and this is why you must continue putting a new book out, and you're getting a few thousand bucks per old one. And that doesn't sound like much, but once you have 10 of them, and you're making 3,000, 5,000, or $10,000 per book every six months. You see what I'm saying? Now, once you get to the point where you have 20 books on your backlist, even if they've tapered off and you're only making 1,000 or $2,000 per book, but it's 20 of them. Does that make sense? New book is super vital because if you do not keep putting out new books every year, what happens is your backlist it's going to start to drop off because bookstores will no longer stock you. Or you don't show up on the Amazon algorithms. And this is the, on the Amazon, for indie authors, this is the hard one because Amazon is constantly changing their formulas of how they display you. And I was having this conversation with some indie authors, but right now they don't really know what Amazon is doing. So that's one of the downsides of being independently published, or sorry, being indie, is because you, you're not the master of your distributions. Some big soulless mega corporations in charge your distribution, so actually that's true either way. Never mind. <laughs> Come to bigger because I got Simon and Schuster. If Simon and Schuster gets a wild hair and doesn't like me anymore, I'm in trouble. Okay, so um, so there's that. Now, so backlist is vitally important. Basically, most of us authors live off of backlist. Um, now, you could have a big hit book and just instantly become a bestseller and make a bazillion dollars, and that's awesome. But if you haven't learned to produce and be prolific, that's not going to last. Very few authors, I can only name of a couple off the top of my head, but very few authors come onto the scene, write one book or two books, have it blow up mega huge and coast on that. Very, very few. Most of us, it's we write a book, it does pretty good. We write another book, it does a little better. We write another book, it does a little better. All of a sudden, now we have a backlist and we quit our day job. That's normal. Um, for every Pat Rothfuss that comes along with the name of the wind that blows up mega huge super hit, uh, there's probably 50 regular working schlubs like me. Okay? And here's the thing you can also have a big mega hit book, but if you don't learn how to produce and you haven't learned how to consistently create product, what happens is you fade away because you'll have the mega hit, but if it takes you five, six years to have the second book, you've lost a lot of fans in that time period. Like I said, most people aren't Pat Rothfuss. His books are still perennial bestsellers, but that's an oddity. That's an anomaly. You can't bank on that. And if it takes you five, six years between books, 
Everybody forgets you by the time the next book comes out. So you're basically starting over rather than building an audience. We'll, we'll take, we'll get questions, don't worry. So remember your questions, we got plenty of time, we'll hit them all. Um, one of the things on Trade Pub, agents. You guys are all familiar with the concept of agent? Um, I see a lot of confusion about agents. Okay, so the way agents work, they used to be kind of a vital fixture in publishing because there was this separation between writers, the working slugs, and the publishers. Okay, the publishers are up on their mountaintop uh, fortress, and they got big, powerful gates you can't get through, right? And the agents were the ones that would look through the sea of crap and say, ah, oh, this guy can make you some money. You should look at him, or great ones, all right? And that was how agents were. And in honor of them doing this, they would take 15% of what you made, okay? That's usually the standard agency thing, is the agent does not get paid until you get paid. Anybody who tries to take money from you up front and says, I'm, I'm your, I'll be your agent if you pay me $1,000, run, it's fraud, okay? That's not how agents work. And there are a lot of predators out there, okay? There's predatory agents who prey upon gullible writers. And writers are very gullible. And this is, most of us aren't business people, okay? So they go, oh, you're great. I'll totally be your agent. All you have to do is give me $20,000, and I'll totally sell this to a publisher. Okay. Happens all the time. That person gets screwed. The way it always works, the way it always works is the money flows down, okay? So basically, the agent takes you on as a client and represents you, you pay them nothing. You give the agent nothing. The agent then goes and sells your book, makes a deal, the agent gets money, takes 15%, author gets 85%, okay? That's standard agency agreement. Now, are agents necessary? I don't have them. I'm on book number 25, I've never had an agent. When I first started out, I was under the impression I needed one, that's what I was told, that was kind of the industry standard thing 10 years ago. Everybody thought you needed an agent uh, because agents were who got you in the door. Agents are who knew the publishers and shook the trees for you and did all this work for you. And sure, they took 15%, but the idea was that they would make more for you and get you better deals so they're worth it. And a lot of people still have agents. Uh, I think, I, I mean, probably half of us, I'm guessing. I don't know the actual number, I'm just guessing. I don't have an agent because I started out, I thought I needed one, so I applied to all these agents. And all these agents kept telling me, ah, no, we don't know, monsters and guns, who would like that? <laughs> so I got rejected, got rejected, got rejected. I had several agents um, who came back and said, oh, this is a good book. Well, you're a good writer, but I just don't know if I can sell this. I mean, who's into that kind of thing? Because the problem is agents are just as fallible as everybody else. They're just human beings. They don't understand necessarily the market. Uh, we'll talk about marketing here in a little bit, but I understood my market pretty good. I thought, there is an audience for this. Um, I think there are people who like guns and horror movies, and I can totally sell books to these people. And so I went and did it myself, which was funny, because then years later, about three years later, I, I made the New York Times bestseller list for the first time. My career's blowing up. I was at World Fantasy Con. I won't name the agent. He's a really famous agent. Um, and this guy comes up to me at a con, or at, the, at a room party, He's like, oh, wow, Larry Korea, what a pleasure to meet you. My gosh, your career is just blowing up. You just came out of nowhere. You're doing so good. Who's your agent? Well, I go, I don't have an agent. He goes, oh, oh wow, really? We should talk. I, mean, I was like, no, nah, you rejected me a couple years ago. Bye. <laughs> and that was awesome. <laughs> that was actually awesome. Because um, I didn't need him. 
I, at that point, I, I did not need someone to open doors for me anymore because I had figured out how to do it myself. Now that said, some people, uh, they still, they do get money out of agents and it works for them. And there's a lot of authors here that will swear by their agents. And there's other authors here who will curse their agents and are on their second or third agent because they fired the first one, okay? So here's the thing, and also if you enter into an agreement with an agent, that is not a suicide pact. If that person is not working for you and they are not selling your stuff, you don't owe them anything. Move on, okay? One of the things agents are supposed to do for you is they're supposed to be able to go through contracts and explain contracts to you and help you out with contracts, keep you from getting screwed over by publishers, and publishers will screw you, just like any other business. It's not that personal, it's just how it is. Um, they're supposed to protect you from that. If you know how to read a contract in detail, or if you have any real doubt, you can hire a contract attorney to go over something, pay him 250 bucks, do a consultation, and I'll walk you through. It's a lot better than 15% of everything you've ever made. Okay? So me personally, I don't think they're necessary, but I'm not going to tell you guys not to if that's something you want to do. So, like I said, I've seen it work both ways. Now, once again, they'll beware the predators. <laughs> on contracts, it's actually kind of funny. I was going to talk about that during this business thing today, but Tony Daniel is also doing a panel later today about, specifically about contracts. He's one of the editors at my publishing house. And uh, Tony had to leave early because he's got a sick kid, so he had to fly out. And so Tony came to me yesterday and he's like, hey, Larry, could you take my contracts one? Because you know contracts. And I'm like, yeah, which is ironic because the, literally the hour before, I'm doing a panel with business. Uh, so I'm going to talk about contracts now. I'm going to go talk about it again in an hour. <laughs> so, okay, contracts. A contract is the agreement between you and the publishing house, which is basically your business arrangement. Uh, contracts are exceedingly important, and if you get an offer of a contract, and it, it behooves you, even if you do not like to read the legalese, you need to read it and you need to understand it. If you do not understand it, seek out someone who does understand contracts, even if you have to pay a professional, and make sure you understand everything in that contract. Here's why. This is your basically your lifeline between you and your publisher. This is your business agreement. Everything in that contract is legally binding. So if you agree to anything in that contract and you sign it, you are now held to that. And there's a lot of really bad contracts out there because there's a lot of really awful publishing houses. Uh, my wife is back here. Um, a couple years ago, we were on a book tour in Europe, and we were going around Europe, and we, uh, we were in London, England, and we are eating dinner uh, with the, the president and owner, uh, uh, husband and wife team that owns Titan, which is a big UK publishing house. Uh, and they're awesome people, and to tell you how fancy the restaurant was, like how, how these people are you. Mick Jagger was eating at the restaurant we were at. <laughs> okay. That was actually kind of awesome. We're just like, I think that's Mick Jagger. Play it cool. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> I got to go to the bathroom so I could walk by the table and see if it's Mick Jagger. It was totally Mick Jagger. It's like, sweet. All right, so we're doing this, uh, we're at this dinner. And so this is in the UK. This is thousands of miles away, totally different market. Uh, uh, Nick goes to me. He's like, so, Larry, you're from Utah, right? And I go, yeah. He goes, are small publishing houses there? Are they as horrible as it sounds? <laughs> Thousands of miles away, because the contracts for some of the small, at the time, this is several years ago, at the time, some of the contracts for some of the small Utah publishing houses were so horrible and so predatory and so awful and, and so terrible for the writer that thousands of miles away in another country, 
they had heard about them. And they were right. Because <laughs> I've seen contracts over the years from some of the small uh, small press publishers where people, authors I knew from things like this, they hey, Larry, would you look at this? Con- I, got a, I got an offer to buy my book from this publishing house. Would you look at this contract and tell me what you think? And I would read the contract and I would laugh. And I'd say, are you effing insane? Do not sign this. How desperate are you? Okay, because the things that are in the contracts you have to watch out for are specifically what rights do they buy from you or what rights are they getting? How long do they hold onto those rights? Is there um, a compete cause or a non-compete cause? And this is the word, this is one that actually was the word made the Utah ones legendary. The non-compete clauses are basically also it's called writer first refusal. So it's so like some contracts have a thing, so like, I sold a book to this publishing house, that publishing house said, okay, cool, we agree to buy this book for the following charge, and if you write anything else, we get right of first refusal, meaning we get to see it first and decide of whether we want to purchase it or not. Okay, that's a thing that's not too weird. However, some publishing houses have a thing that's like, well, we have right of first refusal for anything else you write forever, not just in this genre, but in any genre, or just writing, period, words in English or any other language that may or may not exist on Earth. <laughs> and if it competes with the stuff that you've published for us, we have the power to stop you from selling that work to anyone else other than us. Which is evil. <laughs> Think through that. That means that basically they own you for eternity. And there were publishing houses in Utah straight up doing that on their contracts. And I saw that and I was like, ha, hell no. I'd burn that sucker down. All right, no way. Um, so, so you got to watch for stuff like that. Also, very important, what's called subrights. When you turn over a book to a publishing house, you agree to certain things. Normally, are it's like... For one language, it's usually for a publishing house. That publishing house usually only publishes in English, right? So that agreement says, we will publish your book in English. And foreign language rights. Now, this is something you either keep your foreign language rights or you sell them to that publishing house. Do not sell your foreign language publishing rights unless the publishing house you are selling it to is a publishing house that specifically sells their books in foreign languages to other publishers. Okay, so explain how this works. If you have a small publishing house that only publishes English and doesn't have people actively trying to sell that book in other languages, and you say you have all the rights for English and every other language, what happens is that book will never appear in a foreign language because that publishing house has no motivation whatsoever to go try to sell your book to the German market or the French market or the Czech market or the Polish market or Japanese market, or whatever. It will just sit on it forever, and you get no money. So if they're only an English language publishing house, make sure you only turn over English to them. That means you retain the German rights, and so should later you have the opportunity to sell your book in German to a German publishing house, you can do so and make lots more money. Now, foreign language is very important. Uh, so with Dan, the publisher I was with, I, I didn't know any of this when I started out. I actually signed over my foreign language rights. But luckily for me, not knowing better at the time, I sold over my rights. However, I sold it to a publishing house that actively has agents 
working with other publishers around the world to sell books in foreign languages. So since I've done that, I, I'm in seven languages, right? So, well, and there's probably only seven because my humor doesn't translate to a lot of, if it's a socialist country, I'm pretty much bumped, right? It's not going <laughs> to Let's put it that way. Which is funny because I, I almost had Taiwan there for a bit. That would have been awesome. Really, that's not the Chinese. <laughs> but, um, so, so Bayendo, my publisher, actively had a guy there working, trying to go. He goes to like uh, uh, book expo in London, uh, the, the London Book Fair, or, uh, or he'd go to Germany and try to talk to agents there to sell the book there. And so, it, for me, it actually worked out because I, my publisher did that. So, if your publisher does not do that, make sure you hold on to your foreign language rights because foreign language is actually really good. Um, there's one author who's here at this con who makes more money off of Germany than he does off of America, Dan Wells. Uh, Dan Wells is basically David Hasselhoff of, of life, okay? In America, he does pretty good. He does okay in America. Germany, he's a superstar. So it's one of those things. Um, it's weird for me, but uh, I, I, if I was in America what I was in the Czech Republic, I'd be J.K. Rowling. Like, I'm not joking. But unfortunately for me, the Czech Republic's only 10 million people. So it's like one large U.S. city, or, you know, it's like one... It'd be like, I dominate Alabama, all right? Um, uh, but, like, but it's funny, though, so we go to the Czech Republic, and we get treated like rock, like literal rock stars there. It's the craziest thing. I just, I'm huge in Prague. That means nothing here, but it... I'm, but the thing is, I get money from all these foreign languages, all right? So we have a deal. I have a deal in German. I have a deal in France. Uh, and so publishing houses publish me there. So make sure you retain those rights. very important. Other important sub-rights, um, this is the big one, the big, big pot, this is like winning the lotto, dramatic rights. Dramatic rights are your movies and your TV shows. Dramatic rights are huge. If you are selling it to a publishing house, and there's just a little publishing house that has no Hollywood presence, no Hollywood connection, do not sell your dramatic rights. Because that's just, in the off chance that somebody in Hollywood does read your books, which is doubtful because no one in Hollywood reads. Trust me, they just don't read. They, they're, all, they're all literally illiterate. Okay, You think I'm exaggerating. There's a reason they make more comic book and graphic novel adaptions now is because they can look at the pictures. <laughs> Y'all think I'm exaggerating. I've been there. No, they're illiterate. Um, so, dramatic rights are movies, television shows, things of that nature. Do not sign those over unless you have a good reason to do so, okay? As in that publisher will actively work the Hollywood angle, okay? Um, which for me has actually worked out because my publisher did, in fact, sell the rights for a television show. Um, now, business-wise, this is something you need to know. Just because you sell the rights to your book to be made into a television show or movie does not mean it will be. There's what's called options. Before you, um, before you get a movie made, the studio, the production company, will option it. All an option is they pay you a certain sum of money to not sell it to anybody else. And then they can now develop it, and they can even make a pilot, but it'll be in your contract, once again, being able to read your contract, of how much they will pay you every step of the way. Like, for Monster Hunter, I get several thousand bucks a year for nothing, basically, to just for them to sit on it. And I've been collecting this for several years now which is actually kind of nice. It's not pay your house off money, but it's make several mortgage payments money, usually on options. Unless you have something that's like really hot and like will go to like, you know, a bidding war, that doesn't happen too often. Um, but like the, the, the Christmas, uh, um, Christmas whatever, Richard Paul Evans, 
when he did his, he actually went up to the Hollywood bidding war, and his auctions were like 30 million bucks. Okay? That's like winning the lottery, guys. Don't happen normal. Uh, normal options for a movie, are, we're talking like the $20,000, $50,000 range. Normally, options per year on a TV show are going to be like five to 10000 bucks. Okay? That's pretty normal. Now, uh, once it's optioned, though, you just basically just keep collecting that as long as they keep renewing the contract. So for me, they've now renewed the contract three times. So, hey, that's pretty funny, right? Um, though, if a TV show does get made, that's awesome. But that's the kind of thing you guys can't count on that. They option about 100 things for every one they make. So just be aware, even if you get optioned, doesn't mean it's going to happen. However, do not give those rights away. Don't hold on to them. Now, the one that over the last 10 years has become the most valuable right, honestly, for it's actually getting paid and not having to worry about winning the lottery, audiobook. Um, if your publisher has a deal with an audible book company like Audible or something like that, and they will get it into audio for you, then by all means sign those rights away. However, if the publisher does not, and the easiest way to check is go look on the audiobook companies and see if any of those publishers or other books are available, and if they're not, that's your clue, okay? Run away. Do not sign over your audiobook rights. Now, if your publisher, everything they do is an audio, by all means make sure you have specified in your contract what you get paid for audio. Because audio over the last decade has become huge. Audio now is about a third of my income. Okay? Audio is freaking amazing. Uh, the explosion of audible.com, so many people listen to books on audio. It's huge money. Do not sell those rights unless they're going to get you on audible. Okay? Or tantrum, something like that. That makes sense? You guys understand contracts? Uh, watch out for predatory stuff. Watch out for anything that sounds too good to be true. Watch out for anything stupid. Oh, yeah, when do you get it back? Um, we talked about my wife and I talked this, to prepare for this like this morning when we were getting dressed. My wife and I talked about everybody we know who's made really stupid business decisions, and so we're, we're not naming any names. We're going to be like, "Hey, what about so and so when they did this and this?" And I'm like, "Oh, that idiot." Yeah. Okay. So on your contract, it also have information in there about how long do they hold the rights. Make sure that the rights revert back to you at a point in time that is reasonable to you. Normally, with big publishing houses. That's as long as the books remain in print. Make sure you understand with them what books in print actually mean, because that's gotten more confusing since the advent of ebooks. Because technically, an ebook could be in print for eternity, even if nobody sells it. Yes? Sorry, also, this is my wife. Publishing houses do a lot of business, but if they hold your rights, then they're not in business and you can't publish your own book. Yep. So that's something that needs to be. Yeah, so make sure there's going to be a section in the in the contract called reversion of rights. Make sure that just in case bad stuff happens, you get your rights back. That's what you're looking for. Also, how what period of time? Like if they're not, if so, the argument there for a few years, the publishers were using was like they would quit printing the books. The books would no longer be in store, but they wouldn't give the rights back to the author because it's still in print because the ebook was available. Except they'd never done anything to promote the ebook, so it's just electrons sitting out there and the author wasn't making any money. So a lot of actually big name authors uh, went and fought with their publishers in order to get those rights back so that they could go and, and self-publish these books that were no longer in print. And some big author, like F. Paul Wilson, repairman Jack, he had agreed it, a brilliant author. Uh, F. Paul Wilson actually did this with uh, Tor and got a bunch of his old stuff back in order to reprint himself, and made quite a bit of money on it, because he's F. Paul Wilson, he's very popular. Uh, at that point, he's keeping a higher percentage of money, even though it's a smaller group of people. So it's wonderful for him. I don't worry, we'll get questions, we have questions. All right, so that's contracts.
Let's see. All right. Now, you have a contract or you're indie publishing, you're actually making money. Uh, my buddy Steve yesterday, he was all, you know, I'm a former accountant, Steve's an accountant. See, somebody came up to Steve and said, hey, uh, so now that I'm making money off my books for a couple years, when do I need to start paying taxes on that? <laughs> and Steve just stopped. He was like, you poor bastard. All right, now, I cannot accentuate the importance of this. Many people, especially if they're, they're not business people, they think that tax money just magically gets taken out of your paycheck and withheld every single time and it goes to the government. At the end of the year, you get a refund. Yay! No, that's not how it works at all, guys. Um, in reality, your employer is forced to do that withholding, and they're forced to send it to the government, and actually, you only see half of it on Social Security, so you're getting ripped off even worse than you realize. Um, but the thing is, when you, as a writer, are getting paid, you're an independent contractor. You need to do your own withholding. And some writers, believe it or not, don't understand this. And I know writers who've broken in and they've gotten like big advances. Oh, we haven't talked about advances. They'll get a big advance from their publishing house. The publishing house will be like, hey, here's $50,000. Or here's $75,000 or $100,000. That's rare. Usually it's like, here's your $5,000. Whatever it is, they're getting this advance. They're like, yay, free money. And mentally, they're used to working an hourly job where the withholding is taken. And so they don't pay taxes on this. And they spend it. And the money is now gone. And then they get book money. And they get paid royalties. And that's more money. And again, there's no withholding. And they don't pay taxes on it. And the money is gone. And then three years later, the IRS shows up and audits you. And the IRS said, well, we have the following income from your publishing house reported, and you haven't paid taxes for three years on $150,000. <laughs> and because of fines and penalties, you now owe the IRS $300,000. Pay it, bitches. <laughs> and what happens is, and this is true, and I won't name the authors, but there are some major authors, like major authors, like you guys have heard their names. You've seen their books in stores everywhere in America. Uh, you've seen them on TV. And those authors work for the IRS, basically now, forever, because the IRS owns them. And so they have a payment agreement where they have to pay the IRS for eternity. And it's like, yeah, my new book came out. It's a major hit. Where's my check full of money? And the IRS is like, bullshit. <laughs> Here's your pennies. <laughs> this is ours now. Okay, so do not forget to pay your taxes. It's very important. If you, right now, when you guys are starting out, none of you are incorporated yet. You're just a sole proprietor. Uh, you're just an individual with a business on the side. That's fine. However, you still need to report that income on your taxes, and you still need to pay taxes on it. Now, as you start to make more money, uh, usually by the time you're making a decent amount of money, so if you're at the point where you're starting to pay mortgage payments off your writing, you really need to talk to a CPA, and you really need to think about incorporating and in the state of Utah, they're either going to encourage you to become an LLC or an S-Corp. And, and I'm no longer a practicing accountant, so I cannot give you advice on this. What's going to happen is uh, they'll walk you through it, the pros and cons of each. Uh, most writers, most people you know as a writer that are professional full-time writers, this is our job, we're S-Corps, uh, at least in this state. So S-Corp, which stands for small corporation. Uh, basically, when you file your taxes, you know those little blue boxes. What are you? Are you a sole proprietor? Are you an LLC? Are you a corporation? Are you an S corp? We're S corps. Um, and then you have to you need to incorporate with your state. 
uh, a CPA can walk you through that. They can usually do the whole process for you for a pretty reasonable amount of money. Not, not enough money that if you're to the point where you need to do this, you're making enough, it's worth it. Now, when you sit down with an actual tax professional, they'll be able to walk you through what you can and cannot deduct on your taxes as business expenses as a writer. Some writers get a little rambunctious on what we can deduct. Because remember, anything that's related to your business is necessary for the conduct of your business as a business expense and can be written off on your taxes. Okay? So it's basically wonderful. That is a fantastic thing. However, it's always arguable as to whether it is actually necessary and legal to deduct that. And back when I was in college getting my accounting degree, we did a thing once where uh, they gave us this imaginary family of five. They had some investment income. They had some side gig income. And all the students did their taxes, and we figured out how much they owed. And out of the 30 people in my class, we had like 29 different answers, right? I think somebody else copied on their friend, right? <laughs> but the thing is, this isn't necessarily wrong. I mean, our professor said it was actually a study done. I want to say it was by Stanford uh, Business. What they did is they took 250 different CPA firms and tax software preparation things, and they did the same problem. And they came up with 250 different answers as far as what was for a medium complicated thing. That's why taxes are evil and taxes suck. I say this as a former professional. They suck. All right? So there's a, there's a rule of thumb in uh, taxes as far as what you can and, can, uh, can and cannot deduct. Pigs get fat, hogs get slaughtered. Okay? So a lot of stuff is reasonable and it's no-brainer. So like my computer that I specifically use for writing is a business deduction. My printer that I use for writing. The portion of my house that is my office is my business expense because I work from home. So on and so forth. That kind of stuff. Now, some authors say, well, I'm going to go on a cruise to the Bahamas for three weeks to write. Uh, and, he, and now, is that deductible? I'm going to say, I am not a CPA. Um, that's going to come up to you and your IRS audit. Okay, so some stuff is really safe and it's a no-brainer. The other stuff is how much you want to push it. Okay, uh, but once again, pigs get fat, hogs get slaughtered. All right, and IRS auditors, they got no sense of humor. So, and I just hope when I get audited that the guy's a fan. <laughs> Odds are it won't be. <laughs> okay, so. Um, let's see, so tax and corporation, now this is going to go into the next one, which is budgeting, making a living, productivity, back to our Okay, so budgeting. Um, now, one thing you guys don't realize is once you are making a good amount of money, you do need to actually pay quarterly taxes. Once again, this is something a CPA can help you with. Um, and quarterly taxes is just like what your employer is doing right now on your regular paycheck. They're doing the withholding behind the scenes. They're sending that into the government every month. You will need to send quarterly taxes to the government every month. And uh, you will have to go through and fill out the paperwork, send that into the government. But every three months, you can ask my wife, I send a stack of envelopes about yay thick off to the IRS and the State Tax Commission. You do need to do this stuff. Sorry, guys, it's unfortunate. If you're making good money, they'll hire a CPA firm, they'll do it for you, and you're just basically signing it and writing checks. Okay? Please, 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 I cannot reiterate this enough. Don't put that off. The government will eat you. Okay. All right, let's see. Okay. This is one thing. So once you're actually doing this for a living, now this is very important. Remember earlier I talked about how the productivity was key, and you got to keep producing a new book so you can keep the backlist up and selling? You need to work out a schedule. 
Like I said, most of us don't quit our day job until we're about five or six books in. It's going to vary, once again, depending on how successful your books are. Indie is a lot more competitive, and you're competing against 100,000 other people. You could be 20 books in and still not able to quit your day job. So you ask yourself, is what you're doing the path you want to be on? It just depends on how much you love writing and how much you want to make this work, okay? The big thing is you got to just keep going until you get the breaks, until you get enough income to replace your day job income. Like me, I actually was about seven books in before I quit my day job because I actually loved my day job. My day job was a lot of fun. I had basically a dream job as far as accounting wins. So I had like the best accounting job ever, which to most of you sounds incredibly boring. <laughs> but I worked for a company, we helped the wings not fall off of A10s. It was kind of fun, all right? I like my job. Now that said, it's very important you guys schedule your time and you treat it like a job. If you're trying to make the jump to where you're doing this as a full-time job, it's going to come down to scheduling, it's going to come down to productivity. You set the time whenever is appropriate for you. Some of you guys, or morning people, night people, whatever, doesn't matter, get it done. Okay? Some, if This is why I said the news thing will kill you. I only know in my whole career a handful of writers, I can probably count them on my fingers, where they went from like college and got their creative writing degree or English degree and then immediately became professional authors. Brandon Sanderson. Well, Wells had a job and got laid off. He had no choice. <laughs> he was working for that friggin' beauty company and got laid off, so. Two? Yeah, so, yeah. Who? Oh, well, Christopher! was like 14, man. <laughs> what? So we're going, I'm talking about, I'm talking about Rothfuss and Outlier. Paolini makes us all look like scrubs. Uh, I mean, he was like 14 years old and wrote a book that sold like 20 million copies. I mean, so it was like, yeah. Paolini, okay. It wasn't an English degree. He was in high school. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? So the vast majority of us, though, what's going to happen is it's going to take, it takes years to break into this business. So it's not like the kind of thing you just go to school get a degree, go to work, and whatever your degree is, that's not how this works at all. And so for most of us, if like you're still young, um, like I know we've got a lot of like college students here, I recommend getting a degree in something that will pay you good money for the next few years while you work on your business. My, my daughter, uh, my daughter is now uh, 19 years old. She's a published author since she was 16. She has sold multiple short stories. She's extremely good. She was just in an anthology with the likes of David Weber, Laurel K. Hamilton, and me, and she had the best reviewed story. Like overall, she, she crushed it. She's a very good writer. She's got publishing houses that are interested in who have said, you show me a novel, I will read it. So she skipped the slush pile and all that stuff. My daughter's good. She's solid. She's been writing since she's a little kid, and she's my daughter. That said, she's going to college right now. You know what she's getting her degree in? Computer science. <laughs> because she understands, after watching me for the last decade, how this works. So she's going to go get a job that will pay her good while she does information security and, and, you know, and does that while she writes on the site. And we'll, maybe someday she will be a full-time writer. That's up to her. But in the meantime, she's going to have a good job. Okay? So the odds of jumping into this and just making it already, really hard, really difficult. Does happen. Not always. It's just it takes time and it's a grind. So while you're trying to make that jump from full-time, regular, normal person employment to beautiful, awesome writerhood, it's all about it's all about figuring out what your expenses are and how many books you need to write in order to quit your day job. People ask me, when should I quit my day job? That's a hard one. It comes down to how comfortable are you with risk 
And also basically the equation that I use is when I look at my writing time and I look at my work time, when I am losing money by going to a day job, it's time to quit. Make sense? When I was, if I'm looking at my time and I could spend eight hours writing a book or I could spend eight hours doing accounting and the book is worth more money, it's time to quit. Make sense? Okay. Also, you need to work this out with your spouse slash significant other. All right? My wife, yeah, so <laughs> she supported me through all this, but if you're supporting family and children uh, and your income is vital for your family's survival, you need to work that out with your spouse and not just stress the hell out of them. There's a lot of writers out there whose marriages crumble because this is a high-stress job, like I said, a huge failure rate, and somebody else has hooked their wagon to you through this, okay? So please don't, you know, don't ruin it for them, okay? Don't ruin your marriage. Be smart, all right? Uh, okay, so, instantly I'm going to hit all the important stuff. I want to make sure I have plenty of time to answer questions here, too. Oh, last thing I'm going to talk about, Brandon. Once you get all this going, it's very, very important that you guys create a brand for yourself. Uh, that's your identity, you as a writer. There is no right answer on how to do this, okay? It's whatever gets you a relationship with your fans so that they like you, they follow you, and they want to buy your stuff. Um, me, I have a very strong personality. I'm very combative and argumentative. There's no way in the world I could have hidden that. <laughs> and so that's just part of who I am. My fans know that, they recognize that, and they love it, and they enjoy it. And they get a lot of I go out and I pick fights with people, all right? And my fans love that. I don't recommend that for everybody. All right? So don't copy somebody. Find something that works for you and your personality, something that you can be you. Also, you know, kind of have a plan. My wife was talking about another author we know. She's a very, very talented person, but her brand is very scattered um, in that people don't really know what she is. They don't know what her product is. Sometimes... She's an artist, and sometimes she's a writer, and sometimes she's something else. And that kind of works if you're kind of like, you know, the Renaissance man. But really, no one knows what to follow here or what the product is. It's kind of jumbled. So it's just like marketing anything else, guys. We're not special writers. We're not special. This is just, this is just a job. We, I know this hurts the artists, but you're just creating a product. And like any other marketing, the audience needs to know what your product does and what it's for. And if they don't know, they're not going to buy it. Okay? So it's all part of your brand. All right. I, I saw there was a ton of questions. All right, so I'll, I'll just start, I'll start working on this one. So over here in the red shirt. You wanted to talk about advancing. Oh, advancing. Yes, very good. Thank you. Okay, so in advance. Earlier when I said about the contract, this is part of the contract's process. When, an, uh, when a uh, company, a uh, publisher, buys a book off you, the way it normally works is they will approach you and they say, we would like to give you an advance of X number of dollars. And what is it? Is it called an advance against royalties? An advance against royalty means that, like, let's, I'll just say, let's say 10000 bucks, round number. They say, we'll give you $10,000 upfront advance. What an advance means is you have to earn it out. It's an advance against royalties in that your royalties are based upon how much money you make per unit. So to make the math easy, let's say... You get a dollar per book. Okay, it's actually not. It's going to be more like uh, it's going to be more like eight percent of cover price on a mass market paperback. Okay, it's going to be different. But let's say that you get a dollar per book. That means that you would need to sell ten thousand books at a buck a book before they pay you another dime. Okay, that's the advance. 
Now, a big advance is awesome because that's money. Uh, uh, like I have had friends who got like $50,000 advances up front for their first book. That's great. That's fantastic. However, if you do not earn that advance out, you are now a loser to that company. And you better hope that the editor really likes you and wants to invest more in you. A small advance is nice in that you will earn it out fast and you're now a winner. Once again, is this like realistic accounting stuff? No, because most publishers are as bad at business as writers. <laughs> All right, so it doesn't, but so advances aren't very important. A huge advance can be amazing, life-changing thing. I, I do know people got quarter million dollar advances for the first book. So it does happen once in a while. The average really is going to be closer to ten. You know, it's a good thing. My first advance for my very first book was actually very, very small. Uh, for Monster International, give you guys an idea. I can't actually, my publisher would yell at me if I told you actual numbers, but what it was, because I had already self-published this novel, my publisher picked me up and thought, you know, this guy's already sold like 6,000 copies back in the days, you know, $25 paperbacks. He probably about maxed his market. So we're going to give him a little advance and we'll do a small print run and see how it does. And it actually blew up. In fact, I sold my first print run in three days. It was gone in America in three days. So what happened is I had self-published. And then for a year and a half, but also there's a lot of time delay in this process. For about a year and a half, the book was unavailable, and nothing makes people want to buy something more than not being able to get it. So for a year and a half, people are like, dude, this book is awesome. Well, I want to read it. No, it's a collector item. <laughs> so for a year and a half, no one could get my book. And so then when the book came out in the mass market, they just bought it. So the publisher hurried and did another print run, and they bought it in a week. And then they did another print run. Bought it. And so it was like the first three print runs just boom, 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 gone, gone, gone. So I was like, so in the mind of my publisher with my tiny advance, I was like, I was a super winner. So I earned out my advance and my very first royalty statement. Oh, one other thing about uh, advances and royalty statements, there is a time delay. So remember, in traditional publishing is very slow in that you will sell the book to the publisher. It's not going to come out and be on store shelves for about a year because there's such a lead time where the publishers like market it and try to sell it to different catalogs like Baker and Taylor. Uh, they try to get it into Barnes and Nobles, that kind of thing. So when your book finally comes out a year later, um, there's then what's called the royalty period. For the next six months, that book is going to sell, all right? X number of copies. And you think then you'd get a check, right, if it went over your advance? Not necessarily, because then there's another period tacked onto that, which is the returns period. That's how long bookstores have to return your books to the publishers. Does that make sense? So if they sell a thousand copies to Barnes & Noble and Barnes & Noble six months later returns 90% of them, uh-oh, <laughs> that's bad. That's called remainders. What gets shipped back to the publisher, actually they don't even ship it back because that's too expensive, they rip the covers off, throw the books in the dumpster, and mail the covers back as evidence the book was not sold. That's called a remainder. Now, your remainder percentage will show up on your royalty statement. The higher uh, the percentage of, it's called sell-through, is what does not get remainder. The higher your percentage of sell-through, the better. Um, and actually, in this business, you'd be shocked how high the remainder rate is. A lot of books. Is, but you, know, you guys know what, you want to guess what the most remainder books are? That's actually fascinating. Uh, yeah, what, what type of book? Celebrity biographies. Actually, yeah, it's um, famous people 
Okay, so when, when Snooky from the uh, Jersey Shore writes her book, it, it'll show up on the New York Times bestseller list because in the release week, they'll sell 10,000 copies. Well, that's everybody who watches the show. So it hits the New York Times bestseller list. Then it drops off, and a couple months later, after Barnes & Noble has it in the 80% off bin, they remainder the other 100,000 copies. <laughs> so it's actually kind of fascinating. That's also why bestseller lists are utter trash, right? Um, I should probably explain that to you. Huh? Because, okay, I'll tell you guys inside baseball on this. Bestseller lists, total bullshit, right? They really are. They're just bullshit. I'm, I say that as a New York Times bestseller. It's total bullshit. Um, okay, so wait. Bestseller list is based on what's called velocity. Velocity in the publishing industry means how many books you serve, you sold over that period of time. If you have a book that sells 40,000 copies in the first week, you will probably be the number one bestseller on the New York Times. But say you sold zero for the rest of the year, it's still the number one New York Times bestseller. Let's say there's another book that's kind of a slow burn, it sells 1,000 copies per week for 52 weeks the entire year. It sold more copies, right? That is actually a more profitable book. It's not a bestseller. Yeah, bestseller lists are trash. Also, it's rigged. The New York Times is totally rigged. Uh, the New York Times is a bunch of lying, skeezy bastards. <laughs> I will say that. Um, I've turned money down from these people uh, because of how much I hate them. They will straight up lie on their bestseller list because the New York Times, which is the most prestigious of all bestsellers, it's, it's a cultivated list and their methodology for calculating the bestsellers is actually secret, even though we all know what it is. Um, they have 200 and something stores across America that actually report into them. They take that list from those specific stores, not all the stores, just those 200, maybe 300 now. They take them all, and then they look at the who is the bestseller. They see who they like the best, and they move them up, and they see who they don't like, and they take them off, and then they publish the bestseller list. I am not lying. <laughs> um, I used to make the bestseller list all the time until they learned who I was, and I have not made a sense, even though my, I am now an order of magnitude in sales higher than I used to be back in those days. True story. It's fascinating. There's another bestseller list called the Nielsen Book Scan, which is actually the industry standard one. It accounts for about 70% of the physical sales in America. Uh, it's so it's far more accurate. However, it does not count. Um, it does not count audio or ebooks, but I've been as high as number one on Nielsen Bookscan and crushed the rest of the New York Times bestseller list and not showed up on the New York Times bestseller list. So, they have me on a little post it note on the wall of Ted Cruz. <laughs> okay, so that's how that works. I hope that that was, wow, that's a lot of rambling the answer of what advances were. Okay. I'm sorry, what? Stages of advances. Stages of advances. It's very good. So most publishing houses do not pay you the entire lump sum advance at one time. They break it into thirds usually. And it's usually one-third upon signing of the contract, one-third upon delivery of the manuscript, one-third upon the book being released. So a lot of times when you guys see a big headline about publisher so-and-so uh, gave a $1 million advance to an author for a book deal. It's actually not, uh, because usually if you look at those, it's usually split over a whole bunch of books, over a whole bunch of time. And so if they said that, he maybe got a quarter million up front, which is nice, but it's not earth-shattering, but they do that in order for marketing purposes to be able to run that headline to make that author look more successful. Remember when I talked to you guys about branding? 
One key about branding is success breeds success. The more you look successful, the more people assume you're successful. It's the reason that salesmen all dress nice, have the fancy watch, the nice shoes, and drive up in the nice car. It's because if the salesman looks like he's successful, mentally you assume he's successful, and you treat him as if he is. As an author, this is very important. And publisher, this is why the publishers do the big advance that winds up in the newspapers, because it makes that author look super successful. Success breeds success. Then when you read that newspaper article, wow, this guy must be a big deal. He must be good. When you go to Barnes & Noble and you see him on the shelf, you're more likely to purchase his book because you think... Same thing as like when you go to Barnes & Noble and you see one book on the shelf for an author, psychologically you're like, eh, he's probably okay. But if you see a guy who has five books on the shelf, you're like, ooh, he must be really good. Then you step over and there's the Jim Butcher shelf. <laughs> and you go, wow, he must be really good. It's psychological. This is another reason if you're trad club, why you must keep producing a new book every year. Because if Barnes & Noble buys three copies of every new book that I come out with nationwide, that's a lot of copies in circulation. But also what happens is they throw that on the Larry Korea shelf. So I, as I go around America, part of my brand is when I do a book tour, I will stop at every single bookstore along my route. So I've been to more Barnes & Nobles than the guy who's the VP of purchasing for Barnes & Nobles. So in fact, me and my wife were at dinner with this guy, and he talked about how many Barnes & Nobles he'd been in, and I had been in way more. Because anytime I go anywhere in America, I will hit every store in that region, and then I'll go to the next region. And what I do is I go in, I meet the staff, I see if I have any fans, I find out who the manager is, I shake their hand, I say hello, I shoot the bull if there's any fans, but it's funny because I've gotten to the point where I can walk into a Barnes Noble, as soon as I see the sci-fi section, I can get an idea how I'm doing. And it's also not just me, I can see my friends and also writers I don't like, and I can tell you what the personality of that store is. And if I come into a bookstore and the Larry Korea shelf is three books, and it's like, I don't do very good here, and sure enough, I will not have sold very many copies. If I come into the Larry Korea shelf is like this, and all the books are facing out, I go, ah, I have a fan here. And sure enough, and this is true, if I have a fan out of Barnes & Noble, I'll sell 200 or 400 copies a year of my books at that store. If I go to a Barnes & Noble and they don't have a fan on staff, I'll sell one or two. It's all about, in book selling, it's all about how much the staff likes you and recommends you to people. So if you're traditional publishing, so Indies is really hard, because Indies is like almost impossible to get your books physically in stores. I mean, maybe in the independent stores you can if you can talk to the owner, but as far as getting your store in a physical, actual store, that's really hard. So that, that is one advantage of trade. The advantage of Indies is you get to keep 75% of your money instead of 10%. <laughs> so like I said, pros and cons. All right, more questions, yes? And this brave young man proposed, he proposed to her yesterday. employees. Very few authors actually justify having employees unless they've expanded it. I haven't talked about other ancillary stuff yet. I will. Uh, I should. Um, very few authors actually have employees. They have most of have like an assistant. 
Okay, now legally speaking, to have an employee, they have to meet certain specific criteria legally. Okay, this is another thing a CPA can catch you up on. It's actually Department of Labor regulation. You can't just call somebody an employee so you can put them on your taxes. Like they do have to actually meet certain criteria. So like on a fishing boat, yes, yeah, like working on a farm, it's the same kind of thing as like I was, I was an employee of my dad. You know what I mean? But then again, you're also having to, now you're having to do withholding for those people and it does actually increase your thing. Most writers suck at that sort of thing, so I recommend it. A lot of writers will hire an assistant to work for them. Eh. I mean, yeah, I, and a lot of times when I see a writer do that, it's like there's most of it's ego. And I, I, some of the writers I've seen hire assistants like, dude, I know what you sell. You don't need an assistant. <laughs> Get your crap together. That's just a waste of money. However, if you are in the point where you are actually doing enough business that you, uh, that you need somebody to come in and do that stuff for you, then by all means do it. So this is my buddy Steve, and he's already said if I get the movie, if the movies actually do come out, he he's my assistant. <laughs> you guys heard it. You guys heard it. Whatever. We worked together a long time. Um, so the thing is, on, on on that kind of thing, as far as employees, I only know of a couple people writers that do have a bunch of employees, and a lot of times what it's turned into is the writer actually feeling sorry for their less employable friends. <laughs> No, there are some, okay, so like Brandon Sanderson's got a couple guys that work for him, they're actually really good, and do actually a lot of good work for him, but he's got so much ancillary business that he's got into, like he's got a guy that works for him named Isaac, uh, Isaac's brilliant, and I'm pretty sure Isaac probably makes him more money than he costs, and you guys can tell Isaac I said that, because Isaac, from everything I've seen, Isaac hustles for Brandon, so in that case, but Brandon also sells an order of magnitude more than most of us, well, probably two, he probably got two extra zeros on his royalty check. Okay. He, yeah, he does. Well, Brandon smokes everybody except for like Stephen King. Okay, just to put that in perspective. He's the most successful writer in Utah. I would guess. Yeah, and, it, and I do okay. He smokes me, right? So some writers have a but most don't. Most don't need it. But totally unnecessary. Okay. So yeah. Yes. So do the publishers get advances? I thought that was just a topic. Oh no, they give advances across the board. Just usually, debut tends to be smaller, unless for whatever reason your manuscript is in demand and like publishers are bidding for it. Uh, like every now and then there will be a bidding war between publishers for a uh, manuscript for a new author. That's usually a publicity stunt. Uh, it does happen once in a while, and it's usually because the author has something special about them or their resume or their identity that makes it really valuable. But yeah, you'll usually get an advance even for your first book. Uh, even if you're a nobody, it's just usually not a very big one. Yeah, actually I need to get something this side. I keep, everybody, I, I'm right-handed, so I keep going over here. I need some left left side of the audience too. Yes. Uh, ASAP. <laughs> uh, is, if anything that's coming in as income that's going to get reported by the person paying you as a cost, uh, needs to be reported. Because quarterly, oh, quarterly. Oh, the numbers on the form. Oh, actually, yeah. It, what, uh, what is it? Five hundred bucks? What? Or what is it now? Before you have to do quarterly withholdings. Six hundred. It's usually six hundred. Yeah. Okay. I, like I said I am no longer a practicing account, but it's apparently about six hundred bucks. Per month? Per month or what? Quarter. Right here. Quarter. Quarter. Now that you would have said ten, six hundred. Yeah. So it's actually not much. The IRS wants their piece. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's, it's actually not very much before you're on the hook for quarterly withholdings. Uh, right here. 
And say it loud, I'm deaf. How often do Indian publishers actually get uh, picked up by normal publishers? Um, that's going to depend. I actually don't know the stat on that. Uh, it does happen. Um, quite a bit. I couldn't tell you what percentage of them. I mean, I, I, it happened to me. Uh, but I was kind of before ebook revolution. Uh, it does, um, like I have a friend named Marco Clues who is doing really successful in, um, in sci-fi, like uh, space opera and military science fiction. And he actually got picked up by Amazon's imprint brand. So he's self-publishing on Amazon and got picked up by Amazon uh, for whatever that publisher is called. And the interesting thing on that is killed it too because it actually massively boosted it. Because it's funny, if you're selling books for Amazon and Amazon, strangely enough, you pop up in the search ratings really well. <laughs> uh, let's see. So back, back to the back, back. Uh, I didn't hear you mention when you are talking about contracts, irrevocable. Irrevocable. Irrevocable contracts. Like, there are certain clauses in them sometimes that say this is irrevocable, which is a very nasty, dangerous thing. Yeah, I'm going to go back to what I said earlier about predatory contracts and watching out for those. Um, and once again, if you if you see something that scares you, make sure you figure out exactly what that means and what that contact is. If you have to hire somebody to walk you through it, so I, I wouldn't I wouldn't even say worry about one particular word because they can they can screw you in a million exciting ways, especially in Utah. They can live with that. Uh, yes, I'll be in here. Uh, so as far as uh, and glasses. as far as backlist sales, does that work best with series or does it work with standalone? Well, that's actually a really good question. Um, okay, so so series versus standalone as far as making money. So this is on the backlist. Okay, when you guys are starting out, what I really recommend doing is on a book when when you're like the first book you're trying to sell. If you want it to be part of a series, that's awesome. But please make sure the book has a good, solid, happy ending for itself, like it's contained by itself. Um, because that way, if that book is not a money maker, you're not married to the sinking ship. You know what I'm saying? Um, series, though, actually are where the money is at as far as backlist sales. For example, I have, I want to say, five different series right now. And whenever I do do a standalone, um, like I'm doing a standalone with Steve right now. However, we're setting it up in the hopes it'll be a series. So the first book will have a satisfying conclusion. Yet, if it sells well and it's worth our time, we can continue doing this. And the beauty of this for backlist sales, for example, I got Monster Hunter, I got uh, Grimnor Trilogy, and I've got um, uh, Son of the Black Sword, or Saga, I forgot where it is. So, to give you an example, Monster Hunter, I am now, with the sequels and the spin offs and the anthologies, I'm in 10 books. Nine books? Nine or 10 books. And an awesome thing about this, I can see it on my royalty statement. Two Monster Hunter, and every single book I've ever had has earned out this first royalty period. What? Well, I had I tried all but one uh, has royal, earned out in its first royalty period. And that one was because of the collaboration between me and John Ringo. So we both got a giant ass advance. Okay? Um, so that one didn't earn out just because the advance was so big. But every other one is earned out. So what else do you usually see on my royalty statement? A new Monster Hunter novel comes out. That book is big, it's a big chunk of money. Then every other Monster Hunter novel. Is it's, it's normally this much? It's not this much. Every one of them. Because what happens is every time a new book in a series comes out, in a continuing series, people tend to see the new one on the shelves, hardcover, or they see it on the internet, or Amazon's pushing it, it pops up on the, on the search engine, the also bots. People get interested in the series, and they go back and they start the series at the beginning. Uh, epic fantasy especially, this is an interesting 
of all the genres, epic fantasy is the most susceptible to this in that people do not like to start epic fantasy series until they're pretty sure it's going to get finished. <laughs> and I'm, I'm, I'm not even joking. George Martin literally screwed other fantasy authors. George Martin, George Martin actually damaged all other epic fantasy authors. He did because of how shoddy and awful his workup is. I'll say that. <laughs> I don't care. He doesn't like me anyway. Oh, it's true. Um, so here's the thing. So like Son of the Black Sword, this is interesting. So my first epic fantasy came out and actually uh, did pretty good. It was a solid, solid, uh, solid seller. Once the second book came out, I actually saw a gigantic surge uh, in the first book. Because all of a sudden, the epic fantasy readers are like, oh, this is more books coming out in a timely manner. This is good. I will now check this series out. Uh, you can ask my wife. I actually, when I opened that royalty check, that last one, I was shocked how much Son of the Black Sword jumped once word, because the second book wasn't even on the royalty statement yet. It was just that it was coming out was enough to give it a nice boost, because epic fantasy is very, very sensitive to unfinished series, specifically because of Game of Thrones. Uh, yes, we'll just keep going. Yeah, um, well, main thing on the CPA is just the quality of work ethic you get out of it. The CPA that Utah would actually recommend, and I've actually sent several writers to them now. I think Brian Durfee's at my CPA now. Um, it's uh, Carver, Florek, and James in Lake Utah. Carver, Florek, and James. Oh, man. <laughs> Jason's the guy that runs this Carver, Florek, and James. He's going to get... He's going to be like 20 people calling on Monday. <laughs> Y'all tell him Larry set you. Larry can't go for hell. Yeah, for real. He's a really good dude. <laughs> what was his name? Carver, Florek, and James. And they're manager, you said? They're Layton. They're a CPA firm. Layton. Yeah, they're very... They're, I, I actually really like them. They, they used to, how I met them was they actually audited me. They were our auditor, our auditing firm, when I worked uh, at a defense contractor. That's how I got to know them. And so then when my writing career blew up and I was like all of a sudden making a whole bunch of money, I was like, oh crap, I need... Listen, I, I, for the first several years I was a writer, I did my own taxes. I'm, a, I'm an accountant, right? But you get to a point as an accountant where you're doing taxes, unless you're a tax... Even if you're, you're an accountant, but you're not a tax accountant, you do not keep up on all the tax changes. So I got to one year, I did my taxes, and I'm a professional accountant, right? And I get done, I'm doing my taxes, and I'm like, oh, geez, I owe a, I owe a lot of money. <laughs> I owe a lot of money at the end of the year. This really sucks. So I called up uh, these guys, uh, and I said, hey, I, 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 and it hurt me as an accountant. Like, it hurt my pride. And I said, I'm sorry, guys, I have not been keeping up my tax law. I, so they did my taxes, and actually saved me they, they paid for themselves and then double that year. Um, and so I've been using them ever since. So that, that's actually the firm I recommended you to. And they actually, have, they actually have a couple writers now. Uh, and they can walk you through. Most like I said, remember, pigs get fat, hogs get slaughtered. If it's obviously business expense, like straight up, no question, you can look that IRS auditor in and say, I cannot do my job without this. And one reference, it is for my business. You're safe. Okay? The cruise around the Bahamas so that you can get ideas. Yeah, I, I wouldn't want to try that. 
Okay. Uh, you got uh, Jim and Beck. Now, this is going to be one that I'm out of date on because this has luckily gotten a lot better with technology in the last 10 years and also people providing this service. On budgeting for your time and your money when you're in the... It's very important. You guys need to figure out what your return is called. Regular business is ROI. Return on investment, okay? You're going to put a certain investment into your product to make it of a certain quality. Uh, make sure you get your money worth out of that, okay? So our time is how much time are you going to put into that product to create it? How much time are you going to put into that product to market it? And marketing is going to be different for every indie book. It's all about, remember what I said earlier, getting your product in front of the people who want to buy it. And the last big one is cover the artwork. You've got to pay for the artwork. You've got to make sure it fits the book. You've got to make sure it sells the book. And the most important thing for indie cover is when it pops up on any sort of search on Amazon, and there's that thumbnail there, that it looks like something you want to click on. Okay? That's the big thing. Is that kind of what you were thinking of, Jim? Yeah. Now, how much your cover is going for now, like indie covers paying? You start about 500 bucks for artists? Yeah, one's 500. About 500? Okay. That's about going right now because there's a lot of hungry artists out there. And, and one thing I've learned, too, and this is just me personally in my career, don't be a stingy bastard, okay? Don't don't try to don't try to like screw people down to the absolute minimum amount because then you get a rep. Oh, I haven't talked about rep yet. Any business, in any business, not just writing, but any business you're in, you're gonna have a reputation. You're gonna form a reputation, and it's just gonna be how the community looks at you. Alright? Every business has a rep. And big, powerful businesses protect that rep. It's worth its weight in gold to them. Okay? There's a reason they spend millions and millions of dollars in advertising. As a writer, you're going to get a reputation of what you're like to work with. All right? And it's gonna, the rep is going to base, be based upon which community is this rating you. Because there are people out there who hate my guts. And I'm okay with that. They'll never, ever do business with me. That's okay. I don't like these people anyway. I'm okay with that. However... I have a reputation, this is a reputation that I have cultivated over years, that if you, like say for, for an anthology, I, I, I could do as many anthologies as I wanted. Um, I have no shortage of offers for, like if somebody wants a story, somebody wants a story done for a game, somebody wants a story done for an anthology, they can come to me and they know that I can get Larry Korea, and for you know whatever the thing is, he'll write to spec, he'll get it in on time, and it'll be a quality product. And everybody who's an anthology person knows this. Uh, was actually, when I put together my collection of short stories, I was shocked how many of the same editors I saw over and over again in my thank yous. It's because I have a reputation. And, and, and so business-wise, people know this. And so you guys are all going to develop a reputation as you go. As I said, so pay your artists a reasonable going rate, because you don't want to be the rep that you're that douchebag that tries to get everything for free. Okay, no one likes that guy. Don't ever, 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 please don't be that guy who wants to pay an exposure. And like, you, 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 you know, you die of exposure, you'll do it. That said, I've done things for free for certain people because I like them or I'm trying to promote them or I think it behooves me to do so for some reason. But do not do stuff for free just willy-nilly. It's like any other thing in business, if you're doing something pro bono, you got to have a reason for it. Okay, you guys are all valuable. Your time is valuable. Your creativity is valuable. Don't squander it for exposure unless you truly believe there's a reason to do so. If you have a strategic reason to do something for free for somebody, then by all means do it. Okay, but you are important. You're valuable. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. 
Okay. Yes, sir. Okay, that's a good one. I know that's what I said. So, main thing is don't lie, because if you lie, it's easy to discover. But you want to accentuate the positive when you brand it. So, as a writer, if you go out, and, and, and I don't want to name any names, kids. There's a lot. I've used a lot of negative examples, but I know some of you will. As soon as I tell the story, Steve will know exactly what I'm talking about. There are certain people in this business that are so everything they say. Everything they post about their living and their job and their their product is negative. It's a bummer, and they whine. And so, like, they'll, they'll be editing a book, and they'll just whine about the people they they work with. Oh, and then it's so bad. And then they'll they'll create an anthology, and be like, oh, it just didn't sell very good. <laughs> so much work in it. No one buys it. Oh, you know, and everything they do, and I know Cal's naughty because you know some of these people and you see them and what happens is when you see that constant perpetual negativity you just lose your talk nobody wants to work with you because you just have to stink of failure nobody wants okay it's not just writing it's any career you're in like if you're in an office and there's that guy and everything sucks and everything's lame and we're all gonna die and uh, <laughs> And then finally one day you push it downstairs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but so so positivity is huge. Yeah. Bridget. Sorry, this is insight. This is my wife. Yeah. One of the things I try to do in my career, a lot of writers help me when I start now. And I mentioned some of the advice I got when I was beginning. And I got a lot of boost from a lot of writers. And I try to always pay that forward as my career has gone on. And it's actually purely selfishly for myself, it's actually benefited me a lot, too, because now I have a cadre of writers that owe me favors. <laughs> but, it, but what Bridget said is absolutely 100% true. It, and we talk about this a lot, and it, it, I hate this attitude that some writers get, that we have this finite pie. And if you, if this other writer got a piece of pie, that's less pie for you. That's, that's not how life works. It, Bernie Sanders does not run this industry. Yeah, thank goodness. The pie is infinite. You can make more pie. Or you can make donuts if you want. Okay? The ingredients are there. You don't just because somebody else is successful doesn't drag you down. I hate this in business too. You used to get these guys where they had this attitude that if you made a buck, you stole that buck from them. And those are the worst people to do business with. And writing is exactly the same. That's kind of what he does with your football. Exactly. And the biggest thing on the book bombing, like this, so that's the thing where I will go out, this is, if you know if you aren't familiar, I'll go out, I will pick an author that I like, and the hardest part is for that is I have to have the time to read their books, because it's like my time is gone. Um, I'm super busy, but if I read their books, I like the books, I think the person, I like them as a person, I want to promote them so they can be more successful, I'll do what's called a book bomb, where I will get my fans involved, and I'll recommend the book to my fans, and we'll all get together on one day and try to spike it in the Amazon ratings. And I used to be able to reliably get people into the top 100 on all of Amazon, so they're hitting number one in all their genres. What's killed me over the last year, though, is Facebook has throttled me. So Facebook is the one place where I can reach the most people. So I've got 16,000 people following me on Facebook. I used to be able to show a book bomb to 90% of them in one day. Now Facebook shows it to 10% of them and wants me to pay them money to show the rest of my followers. So Facebook is actually screwing young writers. <laughs> but yeah, so that's the reason I started doing the book box. 
Um, and I try to help people when I can. And other writers try to help people when they can't, too. And so try to build up that community of positivity around you. And that said, guys, you're going to piss people off and people are going to try to drag you down. In the words of Bono, don't let the bastards drag you down, okay? Just keep on trucking, all right? And there's a lot of really super negative writer groups out there. Avoid those people like the bubonic plague because eventually they will turn on you and eat you. Oh, gosh, that is so hard to tell. Um, yeah, that's one of those, I don't know. I just don't know. It, it has changed so much. Like I said, when I started doing this, guys, with $25 print-on-demand paperbacks, and e-books were a novelty. Um, and you know, nobody had e-readers. It's like almost impossible to say. It's like kind of like I'm on a panel on genre fiction. It's people are like, what do you think the next big thing is? It's like, no, I wouldn't tell you. I just go write it. And so one time somebody asked me that on a panel, and I go, sexy mummies. <laughs> so that was kind of the running joke. Um, but honestly, no, it's changed so much. There's a lot of big things looming on the horizon in our industry. For example, the single biggest book retailer in America is Barnes & Noble. Barnes & Noble was really struggling for a long time, and still is. It's just because of the change in retail versus uh, online sales. It's huge, huge shakeup, and it's now under new ownership. And a lot of people think this could be the end of the world, let's all panic, or other people are thinking this could be good because actually the new ownership turned around a major bookstore chain in Britain and made it actually very profitable and successful again. What will happen? I have absolutely no idea. Now, a lot of writers that are traditional public are paying a lot of attention to that because that's our single biggest customer. So, I don't know. What will happen there? I don't know. The thing is, though, no matter what happens, you need to make sure you're just any other business. You need to be flexible. Because the main thing is your bottom line survival. You need to make sure you keep up your income. What does that come down to? Getting your product in front of the people who want to buy your stuff. So, like, if I need to, like, bail out and go full rebel indie selling directly to my fans, uh, you know, off a printing press in my basement, I will do so. You know, I don't know. I just, I have no idea. We'll all die of coronavirus next year. I don't know. <laughs> that would be bad for book sales. Let's go over here. So, talk about ancillary products. Oh, ancillary products. Very good. Um, now, this is one that very few authors develop. Um, so, what? Ancillary products are going to be anything that's like related to your business and your brand that you can sell and make money. Um, so, for me personally, I've done this a lot. Uh, I have boosted my income for many, many years doing this with various projects. I have games. Uh, I've done two role-playing games based upon uh, Monster Hunter. Now uh, we just did a we did a Kickstarter for the Savage World Monster Hunter. It was one hundred and twenty thousand bucks. I think is what we made. Um, yeah, very nice. And so stuff like that. Games, comic books uh, is one that some authors are now expanding into. John Ringo is trying to get a Black Tide Rising zombie apocalypse comic book off the ground based upon his so he got Chuck Dixon to write it who, you know, if you guys are comic book people you're naughty, because he's a, Chuck's a big freaking deal um, I have done challenge coins for uh, my fictional universes actually we did uh, first Kickstarter, I think we did $100,000 second when we didn't do a Kickstarter, I just sold directly to the fans, because we used the mailing list to be based upon that first Kickstarter and so I, because Kickstarter takes 10% so we just did the second one without Kickstarter to make more money. Um, we did that twice. We've done t-shirts, we've done Zippo lighters, we've done mugs. And not necessarily for stuff out of my books, but just like once you get a good enough fan base, you can start doing products based upon the in-jokes of your fan base. Um, hence, anything you see that's manatee related. <laughs> um, I actually am one of the only authors I know who at one point had my own line of ammunition. 
Uh, uh, true story. And that was fun because I, I got approached by an animation manufacturer who thought it was funny. And they said, would you like to do this? And we came up with a, we, a contract, an agreement, and they made Emma. It was, had my Monster Hunter logo on it. I have gun companies have made guns, runs of guns, with my vocals on them. I'm probably the only author that has that. Um, that's a very brand-specific kind of thing. But these are, I, tomahawks, oh my gosh, they have tomahawks with my logo on them. Our RMJ makes literal, really nice tomahawks with my stuff. Actual figures. Say what? Actual figures. Oh, uh, yeah, we actually had, um, we have had at different times. Uh, well, and actually, I, there, I, there's something coming, hopefully in the near future, that I can't talk about because I'm an NDA, which would be really awesome. But yeah, so, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of thing. So ancillary is anything you can do to build a brand. You gotta be cool about that. You gotta be natural about that. You can't just like, I'm a new author, here's my first book, and I have a line of t-shirts. <laughs> well, they better have one hell of a cool logo, all right? Um, but like Steve and I, for the project we're working on last night, he showed me a logo that, that, that's something that we were talking about. That's like super bitching. And I thought, like, you know, it actually look really good. And so just mentally, I'm like, yeah, maybe for a project, that should totally be the, the thing. I have made so much money off that little simple Monster Hunter patch that I had on my first original self-published book. And actually, people have asked since, like, can I get a JPEG of that? I was like, no, because the original one I drew on a piece of scratch paper and faxed over to the local Boy Scout shop that did embroidery, and they embroidered it for me like it was a Boy Scout patch. That's where that original patch came from. It was on the self-published cover of the original monster. So, and I made piles of money off that one. Part because well, when I got my movie deal, part of the movie deal, or part of the, the Hollywood option deal, was that logo will specifically be part of the contract so it can be on movie posters. Should that ever happen. <laughs> That's it, Dwayne Johnson came on as executive producer last year, so fingers crossed, we'll see what happens. That'd be all right. I, uh, he's cool. Uh, way over here, you've been waiting a while. Um, and then, so, I, then you, um, If you do get a contract, you like most of it, but you don't like some of it, how do you communicate that? Oh, well, this basically just could come down to a relationship between you. This is the kind of thing where if you have an agent, that's something your agent's supposed to do for you. You go to the agent and say, this is bullcrap. I'm, I'm in, except for this. And they'll take it back and they'll argue for you. If it's uh, just between you, like when I have a contractual thing between me and my publisher, I, I go, uh, guys, I can't do this, or I can't make this date, or I don't like this, or can we change this? And I have a really good relationship with them now, based upon you know mutual, working, beneficial, whatever. And they'll be like, okay, cool, that's cool, we'll, we'll, we'll change it to this. So it's going to come down to like any other business or any personal uh, relationship between you and the person you're negotiating with. Unless you got an agent, then that's their problem. Make those suckers work. They're getting fifteen percent. They better be doing something. I think they're usually a ripoff. Okay. And so right here, you can wait. This is a really good question because um, network is one of those nebulous things that everybody says you should do it. But it's like, how do you do it? And there's not really a right way or a wrong way to do it. It's all going to come down to you, your personality, and how you interact with people. My publisher likes to say that there's four kinds of authors. There's authors who should go out and publicize more and do. There's authors who should go out and publicize more and don't. There's authors who should not go out and don't. And there's authors who should not go out and do. <laughs> See what I'm saying? So it all comes down to you personally. So for example, like for me, I'm a, I'm a pretty loud, big, gregarious guy. I can't help it. It's my nature. It's my personality. I walk into a room. I'm big. I'm loud. 
I am a storyteller. I talk with my hands. I'm very Portuguese. Okay, I'm a, I am a Portuguese. If you know Portuguese people, I am a Portuguese stereotype. All right, <laughs> that's my nature. I can't help it. And so I have a tendency when I go to events to just kind of collect a crowd of people and shoot the bull. And I've met a ton of people that way, and I met a lot of really interesting people that way. Um, and that's, that's worked for me. Other people are a little more quiet, a little more chill. But then again. I, my personality, I tend to scare people away who are like that. Um, so it just kind of depends. Like, um, like my buddy Steve, I'll call Steve. Steve's actually a really chill, kind of quiet. He kind of does the gray man thing in a situation, you know. So, so Steve kind of blends in. But like, so we have an editor, friend of ours, who a couple years ago, Steve met him for the first time, Tony. Uh, and Tony is like, like a really chill, kind of quiet, sedate kind of guy. Steve and Tony like totally hit it off, and so Steve went up pitching a book to Tony, and then later on was talking to another guy, another editor at our at the publishing house, and and he goes, yeah, I pitched this thing to Tony, he really liked it, and uh, are you doing? Steve goes, I pitched this thing to Tony, and so the other editor goes, I bet he hated it, he hates everything, and Steve's like, because <laughs> personality types matter a lot in business. My personality, big, loud, gregarious guy, I I turn off certain people. Uh, other people, you know, th that works. So you got to think about you yourself, like what works for you and what your personality is and how you roll, and then own that. So um, Bridget and I have a, have a good friend of ours, Casey Ezel, is an up-and-coming author. She's awesome. Casey is a hustler. Casey is super talented, but Casey schmoozes. She's a helicopter pilot, right? It is her day job. And so she's got swagger anyway, right? <laughs> All pilots have to have swagger or they suck, right? But Casey just goes and goes for the gold. And she will do elaborate things. Casey has like gone to cons dressed up in costume, you know, to, to promote things. Casey will straight up have the courage to go up to authors like big, fancy, important people and just be like, I think we should do this together. That would be awesome. She cornered me at Dragon Con to pitch Noir Fatale to me, which we wound up editing together. Because she did her homework, though. She just wasn't a bully. But she was like, Larry Correa really likes noir. He did the Grim Noir Chronicles, which is really popular. He really likes this stuff, and I need a, I have this edit, I have this anthology I want to do, but my name is not big enough to sell it. I need somebody bigger with me to sell this anthology, and Larry likes this stuff. I'm going to corner Larry at Dragon Con and try to browbeat him into doing this. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing is, she did. And, all, and it worked perfect, because I actually really liked the pitch. I really liked the idea. I love noir. So we did an anthology of science fiction and noir fantasy stories. But the reason that anthology exists is because of Casey and Casey's network. And that works for Casey, because she just, you know, yeah, she just headbutts it, okay? So it's going to come down to personality. So there's not really a right way, not really a right way. Like I said, Steve, cool, chill, hangs out, shoots the bowl, works good for him. Casey, headbutts the guy. All right, so yeah, that works. Uh, wow, we got a ton. Let's see, you've been waiting a while. Back there. Okay, so I have two questions. Okay, so you were indie, and then you went, what to me is that because I was with a editor, and then went in. It seems like that would kiss off 80, 85% of your money. So tell me how that works. Uh, no, actually, I, I'm doing really well. Explain that. Sure. Okay. And then the other question is anything, I mean, because the whole point of everything is to sell books, so marketing. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Okay, so here's the thing. There's not, once again, like I said earlier, there's not a right way or a wrong way. It's all about product in front of eyeballs who want to buy it. Okay? So for me personally, I started out, I did indie because I got rejected by everybody, but this is back in the day when indie was way technologically uh, backwards compared to what it is now. This is pre-Amazon Kindle. This is pre-ebook revolution. Like I said, the majority of what I did, I did, yeah, we did eBooks back then, but they were trash compared to now. No one had e-readers. And so this this 11 years. This is not that long ago. Um, that's how much, that, when you're asking how the industry changed, that's a perfect example. Who could have predicted that? So for me, I had maxed the audience that I could reach. I actually, for, I actually made a national bestseller list. I was number three on the Entertainment Weekly bestseller list with my self-published book. That, back in those days, was unheard of. Right? That never happened. However, I had absolutely maxed what I myself could reach on my own power at the time. I couldn't go any further on my own steam and in my own marketing reach. I had about 6,000 copies of what I could do back in those days. Uh, that was mostly sold to internet gun nuts on a forum called The Firing Line. Back in ye olden times. Like, I one guy here who was there. You know, he knows this. He knows this. It's old, old days of the internet. Then I got approached by my publisher because I was selling them at an independent bookstore in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Did extremely good there. The owner of this bookstore approached my publisher and said, you guys should buy this book. I could sell the shit out of it. And uh, my, that's where my publisher read it, liked it, picked me up. Actually, I had applied to this publishing house, but I never got rejected. It just disappeared. I, I, my manuscript got lost in the slush pile. Years and millions of dollars later, my publisher tried to find the original manuscript and they couldn't find it. So I think is it's sitting in like a post office somewhere, all right? So for me, that was the direction that made the most sense for my career, and I've stuck with my publisher ever since. So yeah, I keep a smaller percentage. However, the reach they've gotten me has been fantastic, and they've done work for me. And so like the ancillary rights, like I said, they got me in seven languages now, TV deal, and other stuff. So it's for me, that's worked well. Now, if I was starting out right now, India is way different, and so, like I said, yeah, you can keep 75% or 80% depending on what your agreement is. That's huge, but once again, how much of a market can you reach? And it's going to come down to your marketing skill. Like if my publisher went out of business tomorrow, um, I would go indie, but I'm also sitting on tens of thousands of fans who will buy my stuff, so I'll be okay. You see what I'm saying? So you just got to kind of balance it. I, I hate when people say there's one right answer, because there's not. Because I know people that are making a pile of money and really good living doing either or a combination of both. You know? So it just depends. There's no right answer. As long as you get paid, that's what matters. So, uh, yeah. Uh, you mentioned some of the branded merchandise and things you were working on. Um, is that something that has to be worked out the uh, licensing rights so yes. with your publisher? Yes. Earlier when I was talking about all the rights you're talking about, where we're going dramatic and audible and all that stuff, what? Oh, crap, serious? Yeah. That was a two-hour thing. We just got a five-minute warning. Uh. Oh, wow. Yes, that's got to be on there because you will specifically have a thing in there that if they own like the likenesses and merchandising and that kind of thing. And if you are the kind of person who hustles and the publisher is not and doesn't do that kind of thing, by all means, you keep that. Don't give that away if it's something you're going to do. Or the like merchandise rights in other world. Say what? So you're saying some publishers would ask for and manage. Oh, yeah. They'll ask for the friggin' moon if you'll give it to them. 
they'll ask for everything. So if they're not going to do anything with it, and you are, by all means, you should keep it. Yeah. Oh, we got to go fast. Speed round. Go quick. All the frequency royalty checks generally come in as a rule for traditional. Um, it depends on the publishing house. Uh, six months or three months. So that's usual. Yes. Speed round. Contracts rights inclusionary or exclusionary? Meaning, like, if they don't talk about the branding and marketing rights, does that mean they default to the author? Or well, default to the author. But once again, make sure if there's any doubt at all, make sure make sure there's not some vague ass language in there that says and stuff. That means you give them your first birth children. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it's like you have to sacrifice your children to Moloch. If you have a manuscript, what's the next thing you do business wise? You have a manuscript? If you have a manuscript. Make it not suck. <laughs> you got to have the product. So, so we've been talking just strictly business here. Let's get back to the creative side of things. You got to make sure it's good enough to sell. Okay, so you have it. Then what do you do? Oh, submission problem. There's whole panels on the submission process. Um, basically, you, you can either go indie, there's whole panels on that, or you can go try to go traditional and sell it to a publisher, and there's whole panels on that. And so, yeah, I can't, yeah that's just too big. Get it good, try to sell it. <laughs> Speed round, who else? Backpack. Oh, health insurance. Very good one. Health insurance and retirement. Health insurance, retirement, right till you die. <laughs> Okay, health insurance, this is a huge one. Now, writers, you're self-employed. This is one of the biggest reasons people stay at their day jobs longer, or they hope their spouse at the JW keep insurance. Now, self-employed insurance is not as bad as people think. Obamacare made it way worse. Obamacare kicked us all in the balls. It was stupid. Anybody who voted for that, you're an idiot. I'm sorry. You're costing me like a thousand bucks a month. All right. Now, that said, sorry if that offends you. It's bad. <laughs> okay. Health insurance, self-employed health insurance is not the bad. You can reach out. There are health insurance brokers out there who sell uh, private health insurance through regular like Blue Cross, Blue Shield, all those. They have private health insurance for self-employed people. It's not cheap, unfortunately, anymore. It used to be awesome. Self-employed insurance actually used to be really wonderful, and I could get like my, my plan kicked gas and wasn't that expensive. And Barack Obama screwed um, But yeah, it is out there. It is not cheap. With a family, you're looking at about thousand, twelve hundred bucks a month um, to start. So once again, this is going to be one of those expenses. What? Sorry, I said to start. It to goes start up radically. Yeah, it sucks. They screwed us. They really did. It mine tripled. So. You can see why I vote all the time. <laughs> but yes, that's right. Retirement, um, you can do what's called a uh, IRA. Uh, IRA, you put away, I want to say it's like about 5000 6000 bucks a year is what you can do. That's tax deductible. This um, is What? Yeah. This is where you talk to your CPA. You form one of these. They're, they're from different, same thing as a brokerage company. And you deduct that from your taxes, put that away, and start saving for the future. Um, and that's good. Otherwise, honestly, most of us just keep writing books. And the beautiful thing about backlist is backlist keeps on paying as long as you keep having books. So writers are one of those. We don't writers very rarely do you see a writer retire. We might write fewer books, and you'll see like Larry Niven is still writing books. Okay, and Jerry Cornell is writing books up until when he died. Uh, it's one of those things that we very seldom write because it's in our blood. If you're really a writer and you have the passion for it, you just keep writing. You might write a book a year instead of two. But you don't see very many. We usually die before we retire. <laughs> but that's just kind of the nature of what we got into. 
Hope you answered your question. Sorry, I had to rant about the cost matrix. Yes. Go fast. What if that? It does, yes, because if it's if your back once your backlist is no longer in print, people aren't buying it. This is why the thing about the, uh, getting your rights back is so very important. So if your traditional publish is now out of print, you want to be able to take that and at least go publish it yourself, or do limited editions of it, or get it at least an ebook, and that you that way you could promote it and keep a higher percentage than you would get through your publisher. So once the publisher has let that drop, by all means, do everything in your power to get it back and make sure your contract set up so that stuff will revert to you at that time. What? Well, yeah, so like that's what happened with that. I mentioned F. Paul Wilson earlier getting his stuff back. Because that's just a license for knowing Dan Simmons doing the same thing. Uh, brilliant authors, big careers, taking their stuff back, redoing it themselves, selling fewer copies but keeping a higher percentage because they used their trade pub and all the marketing muscle and all that years of distribution to build up a really huge fan base. You'd be foolish not to sell old stuff to them. Okay, anything else? We have time? Thank you. Oh, okay.